0: Hello everyone, uh, welcome to the Island Talk Show, uh, a free space to discuss different developments in Muslim majority countries and beyond in the hope of promoting uh, a Muslim case for freedom. Uh, my name is Tasneem Idris and I am the Editorial Associate of the Islam Liberty Network and this is actually our sixth episode. You can find all of our other episodes um, in our YouTube channel and F- Facebook page uh, the Islamic Liberty Network. Um, And we discussed several um, opinions and several topics with different uh, guests from all over the world. Uh, Today we're very happy to be joined uh, by Dr. Ahmed Kuru, who is a professor of political science at San Diego State University, uh, USA. This episode is dedicated to discussing his recent book entitled um, Islam, Authoritarianism and Underdevelopment, a Global and Historical Comparison. Which actually became the co winner of the American Political Science Association's International History and Politics Section Book Award. This book, as well as his recent book, uh, were translated into several languages like Arabic, Turkish, um, and French. Mr. Kourou, very happy to have you with us today.
1: Thank you, Tasnin. It's my pleasure to be with you.
0: Great. Thank you for being with us. So um, your book is definitely um, a must read for the students of uh, political sciences, history, international relations, and anyone who's interested um, in these topics. But as you know, there's like many other books out there who talked about this issue, the backwardness of the Muslim world. Have you spotted a certain element that wasn't there, um, that wasn't properly addressed? In, in In other words, what makes your book special?
1: Thank you for the question. In fact, when an author decides that the question has not been properly answered by the existing literature, that's the time the author decides to write the book. In my case, first of all, there are scholars and politicians who denied the problem. And they argue from sometimes a postmodern approach, cultural relativism, saying that, what is development? What is democracy? How do you compare? They deny. Some Western people deny for the sake of being kind and saying that, no, no, don't call any group of countries as authoritarian, backward, etc. Some, from a Muslim point of view, are apologetic in a way that they want to defend the tradition, culture, and their honor and dignity. And I respect all of these attitudes. But my take on is that for being kind and also respectful, as a Muslim to my tradition, I need to be critical to make it better, to reach a better level. So that's the first step, to acknowledge the problem. For many years, I myself wrote on Islam and democracy, showing that oil rents rather than certain ideas and theologies cause the problem of authoritarianism but i reached to a point that it is more effective for the muslim countries to discuss authoritarianism under development ideas culture tradition history that's Mm -hmm. one thing to acknowledge the question the second step is the answer and many from orientalists in academia or islamophobes in political realm from the republicans in the u.s to certain uh, secularists in the middle east they blame islam and this has been very weak argument Mm -hmm. for at least three reasons one is that islam has a golden age where perfectly compatible with islam we can discuss later on second there is even cutting edge philosophers like Ibn Khaldun and very major cities like Istanbul, even after the 12th, 13th centuries. And then finally, even today, there is a variation. We have democracy in Tunisia, Indonesia, Senegal. So the Muslim world is not a block of authoritarianism. Sure. So this is the weakness of essentialism. And then the colonial argument seemed to be weak for many reasons. Chronologically, colonization came after the problem began, and many other reasons. So then, my contribution would be, that was the plan, and I hope at least to a certain extent achieve. by the book, let me show you, Islam, authoritarianism, and them. Sure. that's the cover page, which shows three philosophers together, Greek, yeah. and then Ibn Rushd or a Muslim, then Renaissance philosopher. The idea is that pre-Islamic, Greek, Sasanian, Hindu, and other civilizations, were very well received by Muslims. The Muslims make their own contributions then taught certain things, including philosophy, Mm -hmm. including many crops and agricultural product, including many institutions to Europe. Therefore, there's a continuity. That's what the books from the cover to the end argue and claim for, criticizing Islamophobic or or post-colonial arguments. It Mm -hmm. makes, therefore, a contribution responding briefly to your question first acknowledging and emphasizing the problem exists second it's neither islam nor colonization third it tries to make a universal argument with a comparison that's why subtitle a comparative analysis because Mm -hmm. i argue that the class relations relations between political religious economic and intellectual classes are important in not only the Muslim world, but also Western Europe. Mm -hmm. And some may take the argument to explain China or other parts of the world. So therefore, rather than focusing on so-called Muslim exceptionalism, I try to bring in a universal argument for all societies. And I think these are uh, the possible contributions of the book. Mm
0: Thank you very much. I mean, you you took us ahead because I was going to summarize attempt to summarize the book uh, in my own words, but you did it perfectly. Uh, so before we delve deeper into the three main um, arguments that you try to uh, you know um, make sure to the readers that they're wrong, meaning the the fact that those who are against the, who blame Islam for our backwardness and those who blame put it on on Western colonialism and those who think that you know as you said the third part is you know those who are against um, the institutions that were ineffective Um, don't you think that the real problem actually resides in the fact that these three camps exist there are three camps in the world particularly in the muslim world who put all the blame on a single aspect they don't they can't understand that it's like an overlap of many things at the same time so isn't is isn't it a problem
1: you're right this is a major issue but there is always the trade-off in social science we as scholars have to simplify things that makes people to understand and remember so there is a story that once on upon a time there was a king who invited all wise people and scholars to bring a map They brought a map. Then the king says, it is too small. I didn't see the mountains and rivers. Then they brought a bigger map. He said, I didn't see the forest and trees. They brought a bigger one. Then he said, I didn't see my people. At the end, the scholars brought a map, which was as big as the country itself. It was very big and explaining everything. But it is useless because who needs a map which is as big as the land itself? So in social science, on the one hand, we have to acknowledge each and every aspect. But on the other hand, if we do so, no one will read 10,000-page long books. So simplification is required. That was my challenge. Because on the one hand, I have to deal with structural aspects. Religious structures, how the after the 11th century, a senior orthodoxy, and how after the 15th century in Safavi empire, a Shia orthodoxy, establish and marginalize other views. How certain ideas of Ghazali, Mawardi, Ibn Taymiyyah promoted the notion of religion state brotherhood. Yeah. That's in addition to economic structural factor, geographical and military crusaders and Mongols. But at the same time, there is agency. Despite the structural barriers and constraints, individuals always have some free will. Mm-hmm. And Muslim leaders, and I call them ulama and the military state authorities, or ulama state alliance, mm-hmm. in many centuries, they had the chance to have better policies, but they failed. That's why I really need a historical analysis chapter by chapter, century by century, showing the combination of both structure and agency. So referring to your question, yes, those who blame Islam, colonization, and institutions, one mistake they made is just single out a single thing. In In my case, I'm trying to bring them together with the notion of Ulema State Alliance, because Ulema State Alliance, has certain association with particular understandings of islam which are today not compatible with democracy for example on women rights women's rights mm-hmm. minority minority rights the idea of caliphates yeah. the, the the idea of imposing uh, dar al-islam dar al etc certain post 11th century so-called Islamic ideas are not compatible. So, at this point, when an Orientalist or essentialist read my book, he/she would find certain ideas similar and can embrace. Similarly, I list and document the colonial destruction, how many slavery, exploitation, plundering, etc. So, therefore, a person who emphasizes colonialism can also find documents in my book.
0: They're trying to be and appealing to every category so that you get them to turn the page and then get... Yes, to, yeah.
1: uh, you are right. In fact, I didn't intend to be so comprehensive to appeal, but that there is, that's the result. That's why interestingly, for example...
0: There's no wrong about this. I mean, yeah. there's nothing wrong,
1: yes. Yeah, you are right. And also the unintended or intended, that's the result because of that. In Iran, there are many readers, they translate the book to Persian. Tehran Times make it front page. Although I'm very critical of the Ulema State Alliance, they find certain aspects of the argument interesting. So the book has been and will be translated to Arabic, Bosnian, Persian, French, Urdu, and German, So and, and engage with different discussions. And we have to avoid monocausal argument by singling out a single factor. But at the same time, I think, when we compare post 11th century Muslim world and pre 11th century Muslim world, in 8, 9, 10, 11 centuries, the Muslim world had a golden age, progressive intellectuals, progressive merchant class. And one of the key factors was the separation between ulema and the state. That's why I emphasize it, that's what I put it at the core of many factors. And if this core change, I hope in the future, many things will be better in the Muslim world. We really need a separation between Ulema and state. Ulema should be more moral, ethical, be able and willing to criticize the government.
0: I mean, the decline started when they were allied directly to the state and they were completely independent and they were like dictated upon. So there were no independence whatsoever. So that's why they started to you know, be literally the voice of the state and the decline started from there and these states are mainly about military you know uh, forces and they did not value culture and history and you know basically you talked about this a lot in in your book but back to the uh, to the uh to the argument of the essentialists so you perfectly showed how islam is compatible with um with moder- i mean with development and how when europe was sinking in its dark ages muslims were thriving in every in every way and this is thanks to mainly thanks to the independent uh, scholars like ibn rushd and ibn sina and i really like the fact that you called him ibn rushd because there is an attempt to westernize the name and to latinize it you know they call him averroes same as uh, avicen ibn sina that's another story for another day uh, but still, just just it's actually not another story for this, At the heart of what we're talking about, because all the discoveries of um, the West were based upon the discoveries of Muslims during their golden ages. But just you know, putting this apart now, um, don't you think that those who are blaming Islam for our backwardness are actually rather criticizing criticizing those who are who perverted uh, the teachings, the true teachings of Islam, and who are imposing things that are alien to Islam and calling it Islamic, like for example, Muslim rulers denying, uh, you know, the right for education for women, forgetting that we have amazing Muslim scholars, women, uh, women scholars um, in in our golden ages, or people who are, you know, uh, criticizing those who are intentionally criticizing Islam and being paid by Western um, agenda. So, you know, don't you think that this is their point? Can we address
1: this? Yeah, excellent. I think there are three questions in your question. Let me very briefly emphasize each of them, since we have limited time. First of all, uh, the ulema, as Islamic scholars, Mm -hmm. uh, need to be separated from the state. But philosophers, polymaths, natural scientists, receive patronage in the muslim golden age Mm -hmm. it was not problematic even ibn rushd in andalus or spain at the time received patronage when he wrote the exegesis of aristotle but it was not a problem because philosophers were diverse group of people who did not impose an orthodoxy who did not claim anyone as apostates or infidels who did not provide religious legitimacy to the governing uh, ruler class. But after the 11th century, when ulema, Islamic scholars, started to receive patronage, it was a problem because they define an orthodoxy, Sunni or Shia. They define many dissenting weaves as apostasy and punished sometimes by that and they provide religious justification to the ruling class and the masses listen to them the the philosophers didn't have that impact on the masses to glorify sacralize the king or the emir or the padishah so that was the difference because a major critic i receive is that when i said ulema state were separate from 8th to 11th century, many people say, what about Ibn Sina Farabi? They receive patronage of House of Wisdom in Baghdad or even Ibn Rushd. That's the difference. I myself uh, work in a state university, but I don't defend an orthodoxy and I don't sacralize U.S. government. That's one thing. And the the second question you ask is, you are absolutely right that, certain original Islamic ideas were, for example, very egalitarian. Islam came with the notion of refusing racial differences. Bilal Habashi, an African former slave, was a companion of the Prophet. And in comparison to Persian, Roman, and Hindu societies, Islam and Muslim societies were much more egalitarian. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, rather than taking this to a step forward, for many reasons muslim took a step backward and i explain in my book that sasani ideas were very important on this mavardi for example a very crucial 11th century muslim scholar shafi qadr he wrote akham sultania the still the only major book on caliphate theory and in that book for example Mawardi asked the caliph to establish an office of uh lineage and nobility and the office would keep record of noble women and prevent them from getting married with not noble men so this is contradictory to what we understand in islam from history to present but why did Mawardi write that because he was very influenced by old persian sasani ideas and throughout my book, I show, for example, the so-called hadith that religion and state are twins. Religion is the foundation. State is the guardian. Without the foundation that collapses. without the guardian, you perish. It's a Sasani maxim by Ardashir, founding king, three centuries before the prophet Muhammad a.s. But after the 11th century, Islamic scholars Need to justify their alliance with the state. They fabricate this Sassani uh, maxim as a hadith. Then Ibn Taymiyyah interpret and many others the verse in the Quran about Ulil Amr Minkum as Ulama and Umara. Mm-hmm. Muslims need to obey the Ulama and the ruling class. But the verse, as you know, doesn't, doesn't refer to any of them. Yeah. It doesn't say Ulama or Umara. So, that's the challenge at this point that makes me hopeful because many ideas about gender inequality authoritarianism they seem to be Islamic but when you dig when you analyze you see that they are man-made and very much constructed
0: okay so it's it's intentional from some people who know that it's man-made and it's not really from Islam but they they want to hide the truth and keep you know perpetrating this um, because there is yes like, yeah.
1: Or some people are ignorant, they don't know the history of it.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so moving to the second um, argument of yours, uh, those who blamed Western colonization, you showed that it's perfectly wrong because Muslims were perfectly under a lot of intellectual stagnation on the onset of the Western colonization around the mid 18th century and how, you know, um, Muslim countries were led mainly by uh, military leaders who trivialized uh, culture and history and art and um, you know um, those who continue to you know make this claim are are wrong and that's perfectly shown but don't you think that western colonization is still here in the sense that the west is still exploiting us economically i'm saying us because i'm from tunisia <laughs> uh, they're still exploiting us um uh, uh, economically and even politically. I mean, you've seen what happened with the Arab Spring. They tried every way, in every way, to, to completely thwart it and completely throttle it. And you see the crisis in Syria. So they are attempting to end any attempt for a change because they know that they won't control the area anymore and they want their leaders to be there in every Arab or Muslim country. Don't you think it's, it's something that should be addressed? It just can't be bypassed?
1: so i really need one hour to answer it's a very complex question I still have but to let, yeah okay then let, let me the points uh, certain points <clears throat> on the one hand yes definitely for the last two three centuries if you go to indonesia and india it's even longer the colonial mm-hmm. history colonization destroy institutions exploit resources killed people and dominate and that's the whole idea i have a book in my library published in 1910 a century ago it says white man's burden and map a word map with black the colonized part and the white the western europe and north america and the white man argued that it's a burden no it was not a burden it was your decision choice to exploit the others yeah. that's a fact but the reason why i ask muslim not to focus on that per se is the following normatively if you keep blaming others you forget your homework your way of dealing with your internal domestic problems and solve them that's a distraction to focus too much on what others did to you second what makes the muslim world so weak to be able to dominate it by the Western Europeans. It is not military weakness, but it was institutional, schools, or ideas and ideologies, and the way ruling urban areas and many things, when the European colonizers came, Muslims were in economic and intellectual stagnation, that they could not respond. It was very different from Mongol invasion. Because when the Mongols came, Muslims were militarily weaker than Mongols, but stronger than on on all other grounds. As a result, the Mongols were converted to Islam. And Muslim societies flourished and geopolitically became even more powerful after the Mongols. But the Europeans came not only with military violence, but also with better institutions, sophisticated ideas, that Muslims were not able to respond because Muslims already had a stagnation that makes them weaker. Another point is that all around the world, including China, India, many major countries were colonized. In the last 50 years, they found many ways to get developed, South Korea and so the asian tigers in terms of democracy latin america made relatively better than the middle east so therefore colonization is not a single result many countries in the world find ways and it's time for Muslims to find their own ways to solve their problems despite colonization Mm -hmm. the second point is that Interestingly, the foreign invasions always always made Ulema state alliance stronger. Because when the Crusaders and Mongols came and killed people, massacred mil- millions, especially Mongols, Muslims turned their face to military heroes. Saladin, AUBs, Mamluks. And that's normal human instinct. When you are attacked, you don't seek for culture, art, music. You seek for a mil- military hero. And that helped the militarization of the Middle East, the foreign attacks. Colonizers also created trauma that Muslims lost their self-confidence. And now when they hear people like me saying that, oh, is he brainwashed by Western? Is he too much American? But that wasn't the case in early Islam. From the time of the Prophet to 11th century, Muslims had very deep self-confidence. Whenever they see something, they pick up, they learn, and they teach a better version. Today, once again, they really need self-confidence and really leave conspiracy theories, believing that there is always some conspiracy against them. No, you should put hard work, learn from others, make it better. And let me conclude saying that. Muslim World and Western Europe had so many exchanges throughout this many centuries muslims learned paper making in the eighth century from china and they taught it to europe it took four centuries for europeans to start producing paper that's why because of this 400 years gap when muslims had libraries with hundreds of thousand books western european libraries had less than a single thousand books But then the roles became reversed. They developed printing press and we waited 300 years. And I think it's time right now to really learn from them, develop and stop making excuses and defining ourselves victims. Just making hard work and be innovative and creative.
0: Speaking of the printing press, I think it's a great analogy to speak about what's happening. Do you think that, I mean, back then they did not the Muslim leaders back then did not want it to to come to the Muslim world because they thought of it as a threat. If books are going to be all around, you know, our countries, then it's gonna you know it's gonna be like a threat to our leaders because people will be knowledgeable and educated in all of these things um don't you think that the mentality is exactly the same for our leaders they want to deny us you know any you know uh, opportunity for knowledge and you know to educate ourselves they just want to keep being in charge and you know um you know thwart any revolution or any attempt to reform or anything like this Isn't, isn't it the same mentality that led us to decline in the first place
1: I agree. So there is a very important anecdote about the Mahmud of the Ghaznevi, an 11th century Central Asian Turkic nomadic warrior state ruler. Uh He was ruling Belh of Afghanistan. At what time, Belh was like Paris of today. And then when this Mahmud left with his army, another army of Karanids came occupied. The people of Belh resisted. And then, the meantime, the marketplace was burned during the fighting. Ghazni Mahmoud came back with a stronger army and the occupiers left. Instead of congratulating the people, he yelled at them, saying that, why did you fight? You are the people who are not supposed to use arms. Whenever an army comes to occupy, just obey. That's your obligation to obey. And then... He asked them to be like children, or like slaves, yeah. and then uh, and then really removing their ability to resist. This anecdote became a reality under the Seljuks, then later in the Ottomans, asking the people, calling them reaya, like yeah. the folk, and asking them dividing in two classes. One class was the military class, ruling class. Ulema is part of it. Mm-hmm. They carry weapons, they make laws, they make politics. The other class ordinary people like you and me, we don't carry weapons, we pay tax. We have no intervention to lawmaking, no intervention to politics. So that if we
0: do if we do we're disobeying them and we're exactly, them and, exactly. Uh,
1: yeah, you, you are a bad Muslim, a bad citizen if you are a citizen. The result is very counterproductive because whenever uh, there was a war and the army was defeated, the people were helpless. But in Europe there were hundreds of city-states, each citizen of the city-states in many cases had the ability to fight, ability to make law, they participate, of course it's not 100%, I'm exaggerating, yeah. but comparatively in Europe, when you visit today, every city, major city in Europe has an assembly house, parliament, city council, yes. where people come together and make decisions. In all societies, in Turkey, Arab countries, etc., it's very top-down. The king, the Pasha, Emir, or the ulema, They don't ask ordinary people what to make about taxation, what to make about laws. And that's a major problem. That's why we don't see many innovators. Many young people are losing their creativity as a result of this education, this political system, this top down teaching to them. That's a problem.
0: They're made to believe that their creativity is bad, so they should get rid of it. It's not just that they shouldn't use it, it's bad to have creativity in the first place. Yeah.
1: yeah, it confuse your mind, they say.
0: yeah. 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 Yes, I've I become emotional whenever I hear this because it's really <laughs> hard <laughs> because we've been trying. I mean, you call Tunisia democracy, uh, but it's not really a functioning democracy. I know after every you know revolution in the world, uh, there's like some years of stagnation and you know you need to build stuff, but still it's been almost 11 years and we're still stuck and it's it's worse in Egypt than in Syria. Uh, But still, I'm hopeful to read your, you know, your book, and I hope that people will benefit from it. Um, Last question, Uh, you talked about, uh, you talked about the ineffectiveness of um, institutions, and you called them human made. So if we're going to change them, we need to change the mentality of humans that are going to be able to build effective um, uh, institutions. But the fact is that our leaders are, are almost all corrupt and they're not necessarily able to build these or create these uh, effective institutions. So practically speaking, what do we have to do to uh, bring about a new kind of intellectual scenery, a new kind of intellectual people, leaders, uh, thinkers? Practically speaking, I know this is the this is the solution. Everybody knows this, but practically speaking, what should we do to be part of this change? Because anytime we try to do something like this, um, we're we're thwarted. We're completely stopped.
1: That's one million dollar question. Because sometimes, unfortunately, it becomes a chicken and egg problem. Because you have to change the mentality to change the institutions, but in, in order to change the Institutions, you change the mentality. What to do? I think the, the first step is to really believe in the importance of a balance of power, differentiation, and separation. Mm-hmm. Totalitarianism is the very wrong idea. Following just one man or a female leader and believing that this religious leader or that political leader will bring us the solution is the real problem in muslim world you have many tarikas religious communities political parties who just follow a single leader even secularists yes look in turkey kemalists That's believe amazing. that mustafa kemal atatürk is the biggest teacher biggest military hero biggest everything
0: He's beyond criticism
1: he's like mehdi yeah yes, it, same uh, as uh, here
0: here, Burgiba, you
1: know yes it's the same thing and or Islamists and seculars are not very different on this point. This is very wrong, because from an Islamic point of view, God has many names we call Esmail Husna. And each ism has a reflection. And science, arts, even politics, all of them is a reflection of God's names. From a secular point of view, division of labor brings Justice, efficiency, and fairness. Because, look, as a professor, when I grade my students, if I look at their religious identities, it is corruption, it is immoral. Yeah. Or if I look at their wealth and receive money for them, it is unacceptable, right? So, this is a simple example, but everything's in the Muslim world, even in Western countries, to a certain extent, too much mixed up. We have to separate them. Soccer teams in a soccer league should be separated from business in order to really focus on a fair game and playing well and not rigging the matches for money. Religion should be separated. Otherwise, imams become corrupt, unethical people. And academia, as I said, should be governed by its own rules and its own principles. So then the result is not only separating religion and state, but also separating each of them, religion, academia, sports, culture, politics, economy, from each of them. Of course, they are connected. Of course, there are overlapping boundaries. But each has its own principles to be ethical, just and efficient you govern that area with some principles
0: unfortunately i'm sorry to interrupt you here but when you say separation you mean separating for example not appointing an imam as a leader or a governor but still we can use the jurisprudence the islamic jurisprudence in our everyday life right so that shouldn't be separated because there are many people who are against that as well
1: yeah yes and no okay so okay on the one hand islamic jurisprudence may inspire individuals institutions but who makes the jurisprudence according to Abu Hanifa, ray is important ray means an expert a person with wisdom make a decision on a particular case yes. but after imam shafi bring usul the method of jurisprudence with quran hadith, ijma qiyas. Yes. In this four, where is observation? Where is rationality? Mm-hmm. There is no space for them. For example, we discuss population control in Tunisia. Do we need birth control or not? If you ask classical faqih, they say, look at the Quran. Does this say anything about birth control? No. Look at the hadith. Yes, there is one hadith. It says that you have to get married, make children, I'll be proud with them. But, okay, I respect that. But where is the data? In Egypt, for example, for 1000 years, the population was between 5 million, 10 million. Only in 20th century, it reached to 100, almost. Why? Because with modern medical techniques, Mm alhamdulillah less infant mortality more people but is egypt able to feed a hundred million people 95 percent of the land is desert there is no data about observation no rationality no point of calculation cost and benefit analysis and i think the result would be misleading therefore if You see Islamic jurisprudence, something inspirational. You need to bring experts of different fields to the table with observation and rationality when making decision. Second, jurisprudential ideas and state law are different things. Mm -hmm. Because state law is and should be made in parliament with the participation of the representatives of the people. Because normally the faqih, the jurists, do not agree on everything. They disagree on most things. At the end, the state law should be made by the people if we believe in democracy. If someone believes that law is made by a faqih, it is Iran, it is Khomeini, it is Velayati faqih. So then don't say democracy, it is Iranian mullah system. Mm -hmm. which has many problems right now it's not working model
0: yes but when you know some people even concerning islamic jurisprudence they think it's a matter of ishtihad so you still you still can you know neglect some things and come come about with something else according to the context so it's not final but some people completely, completely, you know, don't want it to happen. And they think it's part of the backwardness of Muslims. Anyway, that's that's that we're still talking about so many things at the same time. But still,
1: yeah, b- very basically, it is not the reason for the backwardness because uh, the, it is a result of it. Mm-hmm. If we were not that stagnant intellectually or fukah would be much more creative. Much more dynamic. Abu Hanifes Fuku, which was much more dynamic than we have today. Yes. And in the future, the only way is first of all to stop calling Muslims as apostates, mm-hmm. because you know the term uh, alfasik kufur in, in Turkey is very famous. Whatever you say, they say, "Oh, it's a Lafsi kufur." But who decide what is Lafsi kufur? If you say that there is freedom of speech, if there is not freedom of speech. How can we reach the truth? In order to truth, we really need an open dialogue, open mm-hmm. conversation. As long no as one
0: affects each other and don't hurt.
1: Exactly. Each
0: other. But still mm-hmm. some people would be hurt by you know simple words, some others would be hurt. It's very converse it's very like controversial.
1: Yes, that's why at the beginning of the interview I said that first step is to acknowledge the problem. Mm-hmm. If we acknowledge the problem. Then we say how to deal with it. Then we say we need an open dialogue. No one blames the other as apostate. Every idea is respectful. And if we really believe in democracy, we really need, we really accept that people can be part of lawmaking. Mm-hmm. That is a requirement.
0: Absolutely. All right. That was really fascinating. I don't know if you want to add anything before we conclude um, on the book or in or uh, on any other thing that you want to add?
1: No, testing. that was a really yeah, fruitful discussion. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. Okay, uh, thank you for being with us today. I hope that our viewers benefited from this discussion as much as I, as I did. And looking forward to having you again on the Island Talk Show, maybe to discuss your future book.
1: One thing, maybe I can say that the book is now being translated into Arabic, and the Arabic readers will be able to read, inshallah. Right.
0: Thank you very much, and goodbye.